Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Tim Arnold. I am part of the Vineland location of Southridge, and I have the opportunity and the privilege to oversee global and local outreach at all of our locations. And every now and then I get the chance to do this. So I'm really excited to be with you this morning. We're kicking off a brand new series. So the entire month of August, we're gonna be going through a series called Just Breathe. And I hope that by the end of the morning, you have a, a much better idea of why we titled it that. Uh, but what I wanna do to get things going is I'm actually gonna have us do just that. We're gonna take a, a few good deep breaths together. So on three, um, you're gonna breathe with me. We'll start with inhaling and then exhaling. Um, let's do it together on three. One, two, three, inhale. And let it out, exhale. Again, inhale. And exhale. One more time, inhale. And exhale. Fantastic. Breathing is an interesting thing because it's the very first thing that we'll do when we enter this world, and it's the very last thing that we'll do the moment that we leave, and yet for most of our lives, we never think about it. It just happens thousands of times a day, but it just happens. Yet, if we just took a moment and thought about what was happening inside our body with every breath, um, it's, it's fascinating. Every single time we inhale, we're bringing in oxygen, and that oxygen is immediately feeding our, our cells and giving us energy to live. And, and with every exhale, we do that in a way that's getting rid of all the junk, the carbon dioxide, our body's ridding itself of, of that. And what's really interesting is that on some levels, you would look at inhaling and exhaling as polar opposite things, and yet they can only exist if they live together. They can only exist in, uh, if they live in what I'm gonna call healthy tension. Because if we choose to do kind of one side and neglect the other, we say, you know what, today I think I'm just going to kind of hang out on the inhale side. Um, it's not going to work too well. You know this, but let's play it out. So on three, inhale, but this time inhale as long as you can. All right, on three. One, two, three. All right, all right, I don't want to lose people this early. You get the idea. Exhale if you haven't exhaled yet. But what happens is this, this thing, inhaling, which just worked for me, um, is starting to cause me pain because somehow um, I, I spent too much time here. I started to kind of lose sight of the other pole, exhaling, and the thing I set out to do, I lost. And now I'm in trouble. And our body just does that on its own. And what's interesting is that breath or this idea of breathing is mentioned through the Bible all the way through, right from Genesis all the way through, there's just scripture after scripture and, and example after example about this idea of breathing. And you, at least I would wonder, why would God give me this thing to manage in my life thousands of times a day, this idea of tension of inhaling and exhaling? Why is breath mentioned all the way through the Bible? And I actually think there's a very clear answer. I think that in life, in our relationships, in our faith, there are tons of situations that are just like breathing. Situations where it feels like you have these conflicting values or these polar opposite things, but we can only um, achieve health in our relationships or in our faith if these two things work together. They have healthy tension. Breath is just this gift from God, this great example of how to manage tension well in our lives. I'll give you an example. Um, I have two kids at home, two youngsters. I have a, a two and a four-year-old, Declan and Avril. And when my wife and I were expecting our first, we were totally blown away by the amount of um, parenting advice we were given. 
And it was quite flattering. It was, it was quite encouraging for a while. We were given books. We were pointed towards websites. We were kind of given people's stories. But I have to be honest, as the weeks and months passed, it became a lot less positive for us. It actually became somewhat overwhelming because it felt like we had to choose, that there was two kind of polar opposites way of parenting. And, and at the end of the day, we had to choose one. And we better choose wisely. You see, we had folks on this side saying at the end of the day, parenting comes down to structure. That if you're gonna be an effective parent, you had to provide structure and routine and consistency and, 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 and the way you parent together had to be consistent. And they would talk about how that structure that you provide your child right from the earliest days will, will serve him or her well in the days that followed. And ultimately, if this, if this little one's gonna be a well-adjusted adult, it would really point back to the amount of structure and consistency that you could provide. We are given books on the Ferber method and research papers and tons of testimonials on how, you know what, we know this to be true. And for us, we said, okay, structure, I got it. We can do this until you talk to the very next person who gave you their book on attachment parenting or some other kind of school of thought that really pointed towards effective parenting was about flexibility. That now we are clear and research has shown us and evidence is there to say that the most well-adjusted adults, you can root that right back to how flexible the parents were. And what you need to do is learn what your child's kind of saying, even though they can't speak, you need to have a total flexibility, even be attached as much as you can to that little one. And, and what that will provide your child in the early years will serve them so well in the years to come. And, and they would say, you know what, the research is clear. The more flexible you can be, the better off your child will be down the road. And if you don't go down this road, it's like good luck in the teenage years. And Becky and I were totally overwhelmed because it was, it was in, a, in a, for us it felt like you had to choose one side or the other. So, so much that at the six month mark in the pregnancy, we said, we're done. No more books. We even made a pact that we weren't even gonna look at another website. But what we were gonna do is that we were gonna identify three sets of parents, people who we just really admired their parenting style. We wanted to hang out with them a little bit more. We wanted to see if they would help us learn just from their experiences. So it started out that we invited all three sets to our house for dinner. They didn't know why, and they didn't know others were coming. So when they arrived, they kind of had introductions and, and, and met each other. And then within about 10 or 15 minutes, we said, hey gang, I just gotta be clear. We actually invited you here um, with an agenda. Um, our goal is to hang out with you a lot in the next three months. And as you would expect, they were completely weirded out at this time. Um, but the night turned out to be pretty amazing because what we did is we said to all of them, throughout tonight, all we want to hear are stories of when you were parenting at your best. I want to hear stories of, of moments when you would say, I don't know why, I may not even know how, but wow, did that ever work. And what was fascinating to me was no one pointed us towards a book. No one gave us a website to look at. No one gave us a, a black or white answer on what it takes. But every single story that night generally said the same thing. Totally different circumstances, but they all said the exact same thing. We have found that we're at our best when on one hand, we're unbelievably structured. We're consistent, there's consequences, there's routine, and we do that well, but it only works if we can do it in a completely flexible way. And, and, and be clear that, that tomorrow might be totally different. Oh yeah, and, and, and what worked for this kid totally doesn't work for that kid. 
they would generally say the same thing. We're at our best when somehow this tension between flexibility and structure are in this beautiful dance. We're doing both fully. And they would say, if we find we're too much on one side or the other, doesn't work too well for us. And, and some of... Um, some of what I was thinking was frustrating because I wanted a black or white answer. I wanted them to say, if you do this, you'll have great kids. They didn't do that. They actually said, there is no silver bullet here. There is no one size fits all approach. At the end of the day, we feel like it's these things, structure and flexibility, beautifully living together. Just like breathing. I was a little bit embarrassed because I should have known that. That shouldn't have surprised me so much. You see, before I came to work here at Southridge, I, I ran a company for 10 years and we did organizational development. So we worked with teams and leaders right across the world and we focused on team building and leadership development. And one of our primary programs was offering this idea of polarity management. See, I had the opportunity and the privilege of studying with Dr. Barry Johnson and, and spending time at Polarity Management Associates. Generally, um, polarity management, the essence of it is this. In life, in our relationships, in our workplaces, there are problems that can be solved. There are situations where you actually can choose an answer and feel like you've, you've done well. You can walk away. There's even situations that are black or white, good and bad, sometimes right and wrong. And... There are other situations in our relationships, in our, in our leadership challenges, in our organizations that are unsolvable. They'll always be there. Those are those things that sometimes you're like, man, are we dealing with this again? It's kind of a clue to say, yeah, and you probably always will be because these are tensions or polarities to manage. These are things that you'll never solve and your goal is to find a beautiful way to have these things coexist. And what we found was leaders and organizations that manage these polarities or these tensions well really outperformed those who didn't. It was interesting because as I found and, and felt I had a strong kind of calling to leave my business and come and work here at Southridge, one of the things that was perplexing to me was it felt as though I was leaving this line of work that I really loved and I was pretty good at. And I didn't know why God was taking me out of this polarity management work to come and work here at Southridge. But what I wasn't aware of, and yet I'm ultra clear on now, is that all of that, all of that work with polarities outside of here was just preparing me. Because in the eight years I've been here, I've realized that the most challenging, ongoing, sometimes ravaging tensions we have to manage are right here in a church community like this. Beyond a church community, sometimes the most challenging polarities or tensions are literally one-on-one -on -one between me and God, just understanding my faith relationship. Let me give you an example. When I came to work at Southridge, my primary responsibility was just to oversee our homeless shelter. Some of you may not know this, but at our Glenridge, our St. Catherine's location, we have a 35-bed homeless shelter right in the church property. And we're open 24-7, 365 days a year. It's an amazing place. Our, our vision, our prayer is that everyone who walks through our doors, whether you're from the streets or from volunteering in a church or a, or, or, or a resident or a former resident, all of us together become more and more um, the person that God's created us to be together. And, and in the early years, we felt that we were kind of clear on a few values that we wanted to live out. But I gotta say, how we live those values out often divided us right in the middle. 
And I can think of so many days and so many relationships and so many situations where we had lots and lots of tension, but it wasn't healthy breathing. It wasn't healthy tension. It was kind of the opposite. It was, it was incredibly polarizing. It was very unhealthy. I'll give you some examples. Um, one of the values that we feel compelled, we feel even called to live out as a shelter's community is the value of fairness. We believe that if you were to walk into our shelter, whether you were coming from the streets or a community partner or a volunteer, that even if you left one hour later, our prayer, our hope is that you would say, wow, that is a, that is a place of fairness. That, that's a place that kind of embodies justice. And yet, if you talk to how we should live that out, if you talk to two people, they could have totally different ideas on how that should happen. See, over here, um, we kind of could split the room in half and you would say, well, obviously, if we're gonna be a community of fairness, that means we have to be consistent. We have to um, really make sure that people are treated equally and that there's not favoritism to one person or the other. And if we're gonna be a community where often we have hundreds of people kind of working together in one day, consistency will allow us to do that well and live in harmony and, and kind of avoid chaos and disorder. And beyond that, a lot of the folks that come into our shelter are coming from situations of, of abuse and situations of addiction and crisis. And we know that consistency is linked to safety and security. So if we're really gonna provide a fair place of justice, we have to do that by embracing consistency. And that was fine, but you see, you folks, you, you wanted fairness just as much, but you would see it very differently. You'd say, you know what, at the end of the day, fairness isn't that everyone gets the same thing, it's that everybody gets what they need. And at the end of the day, if we're gonna live out this value of fairness, we've gotta embrace individuality. We have to understand that every single person who walks through our door is walking through those doors with their own story. And that story has to be understood and, and we gotta apply that in how we treat each other because you see, the things that you're capable of, you may not be capable of. And the situation that you're coming from may mean that we have to accommodate you differently. And if at the end of the day, all we are is consistent, we're actually gonna be far from fair. We're gonna be incredibly unfair. And you know what? You, 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 Two people or even two sides of the room could joke about different biases and how you folks are so individualistic and you guys are all about, you know, the, the big team. And that's fine, but sometimes it wasn't fine. Sometimes it actually ravaged us. I think of a situation with a, a gentleman who was staying with us and he decided um, to use a substance on our property that wasn't allowed. And generally what that meant was that that person had to leave our community for at least a couple days. And, and you folks that understand the value of consistency um, knew that that had to happen for lots of reasons. First, for his own sake, he needed to understand the consequences to behavior for other people's sake, because you see, lots of other people have had to leave our community for a few days for decisions like this, and we can't show favoritism. That has to be consistent. But also, a lot of people are coming here to get away from that kind of experience. And, and ultimately, if we're not showing that we take that seriously, it's incredibly unfair to them. If we were gonna do the fair thing, this person couldn't stay with us for at least a few days. And yet you folks, you saw a totally different picture because what you saw was someone who in the last two years has been nothing short of a miracle. Since this person walked through our doors to where they are now, who would have ever thought this person would come that far? And you also know, and we all know that in the next day, in the next 24 hours, this person was actually going to long-term treatment which is another only God miracle. And you know, 
we've been around here long enough to know that if this person is asked to leave our community tonight, they're not going to treatment tomorrow. They're probably not ever gonna be here again. This could be a life or death decision. And all of a sudden, this idea of managing this tension between consistency and individuality isn't fun anymore. And it feels far from healthy in terms of, are we breathing well right now? I'll give you another example. As a shelter community, we desperately are trying to be a, a home. We want everyone who is part of our community to experience the upsides of home. Not maybe a building that you go to or kind of turn the key and, and sleep at night, but a, a sense of place, a sense of community and friendship and camaraderie and, and safety and security. And for me, I've always known that if we're gonna really live out this value of home for everybody, then we gotta embrace fun. We, and we do, we have um, rec programs, recreational programs every night of the week. We have um, slow pitch and, and, and rock climbing and creative arts and, and we have parties. We celebrate holidays and, and we celebrate individual successes. We even occasionally do retreats. We do winter retreats and some summer camping experiences and, and even now and then we'll do a good karaoke night. And let me tell you, if you haven't participated in karaoke with a, a street-involved community, you really haven't lived. We know that if we're gonna involve, be more and more of a home, we gotta embrace fun. But what I've learned, sometimes the hard way, is that just by embracing fun doesn't necessarily mean we'll be a home for people because fun only works when it's in tension with seriousness. Because the reality that everyone's facing is serious. Some people are facing life or death situations. And sometimes we get it right. Sometimes we breathe well between this idea of fun and seriousness. And sometimes we don't. I think of a situation a couple years ago at Easter. We had a, a young woman staying with us and just a, a lovely, gracious person and, and, and very crafty. She would slowly but surely work every day on crafts to decorate the shelter for Easter. And slowly, the shelter was transformed. I remember the week of Easter going up and having lunch in the shelter. And I kind of looked and it was like Easter had puked on the shelter. It was everywhere. There was baskets and, and bunnies and fluff and, and eggs. And it was awesome. And I thought, you know what? There is probably not a shelter in Canada that embraces home like this. And it was awesome, but not for everybody. One gentleman at that lunch said, hey, Tim, can I have five minutes of your time? I said, absolutely. And we went and sat down somewhere kind of just with us. And he said, here's the thing. I get it. I totally get it. I even understand the value behind what you're trying to do here with Easter. But here's the thing. I need a corner of this place that's not constantly reminding me that I'm not spending Easter without my kids this year. I need that. And as soon as he said it, I went, of course you do. And I'm so sorry that you don't have that right now. But I also knew in that moment that it wasn't as easy as saying, okay, Easter's over, take everything down. I was reminded and I was humbled that, wow, this is hard. Wow, if we're gonna live out this value of home, we're gonna hopefully do better and better at figuring out how to do this. Because both of these things matter. We have to do better at breathing well between this tension between fun and seriousness. Now you may be, asking me kind of um, how this relates to you. You could say, hey, this is interesting, but I'm not part of your shelter community. And I bring these examples up generally to just shed some light on this idea of healthy tension because I believe the tensions that we all share are, are actually outside the shelter. They're just being part of a community of faith. Some of the tensions that I think are the hardest and most difficult to manage are just between me and God in my daily relationship with him. 
The Bible's full of them. What's interesting is my, my upbringing would have suggested that a life of faith is all about black or white, that everything's absolute. And I remember hearing time and time again that at the end of the day, when it comes to your faith, you just need to know that you know that you know that you know. And I still believe that. I still believe that the Bible has revealed things clearly that are absolute, that are black or white. And I hold on to those things and I hope that I understand them more every day. And I've realized that that's only half of the story. That's only part of the truth because there's this whole other realm to our faith that's far from black or white, but instead incredibly gray, full of mystery, full of unknown. And we'll never, we'll never fully figure it out. We'll just always keep working at it, hopefully better and better all the time. I think of um, probably an example that a lot of people can relate to, this idea of tension between, um, on one hand, grace, and on the other hand, truth. Is the gospel, is the Bible ultimately pointing towards an experience with Christ that's full of grace? Um, and some people would say, yes, this is where I want to live. This is what faith is to me. Ultimately, they embrace kind of a, 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 a liberal approach to faith, and it's all about the work of Jesus being free. They spend time looking at Romans 3, 21 to 26. But now God has shown us a different way of being made right in his sight. Not by obeying the law. Not by kind of forming some rules and making sure we live up to those rules. Now God, in his gracious kindness, declares us not guilty. He declares sinners to be right in his sight because they believe in Jesus. Just believing in Jesus is what it takes. And our faith experience has a, a strong emphasis on God's unconditional love. And the gospel as we know it and the gospel as we explain it to others is, is all-encompassing and all about forgiveness. And when we talk about discipleship or we talk about growing in God, it's all um, focusing on, on what the Bible calls an easy yoke and a light burden. And it's true. The Bible is, is clear on those things, except when it becomes our only truth. Because if we live here and we neglect kind of the other side, this grace-based approach to our faith actually starts to work against us. It's like inhaling and holding it. Sometimes it's just something's off. We find that over time, although we put our, our belief in this person called Jesus, we haven't actually worked hard to live like Jesus. Our life doesn't change. And as a result, we find that we're struggling in relationships and we're struggling sometimes in our marriage or, or other situations. And we're thinking, man, I thought that a life of faith would, would make things easier this way. And I didn't think I'd struggle this much. And, and the other thing is no one else is, is even pointed towards God through our life because they don't see a difference. Our lives aren't changing. We're believing in Christ, but we're not following him. The exact same experience, but opposite could be lived out here. People who said at the end of the day, it's about the truth of God. Our kingdom is explained as a narrow gate. Folks who kind of are comfortable hanging out here would say, you know, Romans 12, 13 makes sense to me. For merely listening to the law doesn't make us right by God. It's obeying the law that makes us right in his sight. And what happens is that we slowly adopt what others would call a, a conservative faith. And, and there's a strong emphasis on, on modeling more of God's perfect moral character every day to just striving to be more Christ-like. And, and the gospel is marked by cost. It's challenging. Discipleship or growing in God is, is often described in, in commitment and sacrifice. And all of that's in the Bible. That's true, except when it's our only truth. When we live here on the, the truth or the law side and neglect grace, because what happens is as time goes by, something's not right. 
This, this person of Jesus becomes less and less of a friend and more of a demanding boss. And we find that the gospel to us is, is becoming overwhelming and it feels like we're just never ever making the mark. And discipleship, or, or if we stay in the game, it's just generally driven out of guilt or even worse, self-righteousness. Here's the thing. That was never the plan. The Bible was clear time and time again. I think of John 1.14 as just, just the, the best way to say, no, these things have to live together. John 1.14 says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, listen to this, full of grace and truth. Not compromising a little bit of grace and a little bit of truth or kind of finding balance. Saying, no, the, the, the whole idea is that we do these things fully together what's cool is if we don't know how to do that, Jesus, when he was here, gave us example after example of how to live these polarities out, how to live out these tensions well. I think of the story of the woman who was caught in the act of adultery and the people in the community brought her before Jesus. And they had rocks in their hand. They're saying, you know what? It's time for justice. This can't be tolerated. And what did Jesus say? It's fascinating. This is what he said. Two things. I don't condemn you. Now leave your life of sin. What was Jesus saying? On the first hand, he was saying, hey, what you did is wrong. Actually, it's a sin. Stop it. You need to live better. You need to live different. You're called to more. And then what did he give her? He gave her exactly what she didn't deserve. Total grace. I don't condemn you. I forgive you. I love you. I wanna be with you. Jesus modeled we're ultimately not talking about being on one extreme or the other. We're not talking about compromise. We're talking about doing both of these things fully, 100%. A gospel experience that's full of grace and truth. There's so many other tensions like this in the Bible. We don't have time to get into all of them today. We will talk about them as the month passes. Another one that I see ravaging churches all the time is what is our church about? Are we about reaching or are we about teaching? And you see folks over here would say, well, I, I think that ultimately the way I understand scripture, we're about reaching out. It's all about kind of taking the gospel out of this building and, and living out our faith and making sure that everything we do is accessible and understandable to people who, who have no idea who Jesus is. And that's how we should shape our music and our teaching and, and, and where our budgets and it's all about reaching out. And it makes sense. But you folks would say, you know what? I actually think a church should be about teaching. It should be about deepening and discipling. It should be about Bible study. It should be about all of us getting deeper and deeper and becoming more like Christ every day. And, and you can say, well, of course it's both. You gotta be about reaching and teaching. And, and, and we know that intellectually, but let's be real, gang. This splits churches all the time. People fight over this. They talk about, well, ultimately this is where the budget should go and this is really where our energy should go. And, and then if you like the, the reaching side, you'll find a few friends and you might even form your, form your own small group and, and talk about how you just hope we can reach out more. And, and this gang would say, well, I really, um, I really feel like we should be doing more Bible study and you'll find a few friends and you'll do that. And slowly but surely, what happens is we find the church polarizing or even worse. And again, the Bible is clear that that was never the plan. It was never an either or. This was never supposed to be black or white. Acts 16.5 says, and this was an example of the early church, God's perfect example of what the church should be. And the churches were strengthened in faith. They embraced teaching. 
and they grew daily in numbers. They were all about reaching out. And at the end of the day, if we choose one and we neglect the other, we will slowly die. If we feel like our side's right and we just wanna embrace this fully, we'll actually set ourselves up for failure. But somehow, if we can figure out a way to continually grow in our faith as we reach out and grow in numbers, we'll become more and more the church God wants to see. And you'd think it'd be easy. I said breathing's the example and breathing just happens. But what I found is it's not so easy. A lot of times we manage these tensions very opposite of breathing. It's very unhealthy. And I think there's a couple primary ways we, we, we kind of find ourselves fall into trouble. One is that we mistake what I'm going to call a part truth or something that's partly true from a whole truth, an absolute truth. Let me give you some examples that will hopefully um, make sense of this. How many people have heard the saying, if you want something done right, do it yourself? How many people have heard that? How many people would even say, I've said that many times? And it's true, except how many people have heard this? Two heads are better than one. I'm going to suggest that for every cliche that you've ever heard, there is always a totally opposite cliche something that's true, but the opposite point of view. Let me give you a couple other examples. How about this? If first you don't succeed, try and try again. I feel like every sports experience I've had as a kid had someone saying to me, if you first don't succeed, try and try again. Until finally someone has the courage to speak truth and love and say, you know what? Don't beat a dead horse. What about this? Absence makes the heart grow fonder. How many Teenagers leaving summer camp have said that to their sweetheart. Absence will make the heart grow fonder until October hits and you realize that actually out of sight, out of mind. Well, I've found that this shows up in scripture as well. Let me give you an example. If I want to look to the Bible at, okay, how should I deal with someone who's being kind of foolish? Well, I could easily go to Proverbs 26.4 and I could say, okay, the Bible says when arguing with fools, don't answer their foolish arguments or you'll be just as foolish foolish as they are. The Bible's saying, you know what? If someone's being foolish with you, zip it. Don't even go there. There's no value there. And that could be my, my life's message. Just don't go there. But I'd be missing the very important truth that comes in the very next verse of the Bible. Proverbs 26.5 says, when arguing with fools, be sure to answer their foolish arguments or they'll be wise in their own estimation. The Bible's saying, hey, if someone's being foolish, your responsibility is to go there. You gotta speak truth in love. You've gotta actually have that conversation. And it'd be easy for me to say, okay, well, I'll do that every time. But really, we realize that the whole truth is that those two things have to live in tension. And here's the thing. Every tension we're managing, reaching, teaching, grace, truth, there will always be specific scriptures to back up one side. And there'll be just as much kind of passages of scripture to back up the other side. What we need to do is realize this only works if all those scriptures come together. If we're not kind of camping out on things that just make us feel comfortable in our own point of view. I'll give you another example of why these things sometimes don't work. I want everyone to take a look at the screen. There's a picture there. Tell me what you see. You can actually yell it out at all your locations. What do you see here? How many people... How many people see the, the, the rabbit? Or as my two-year-old would say, the bunny. How many people see the bunny? Little ears pointing and the tail at the bottom. Okay, how many people see the duck? Can everyone see the duck? The rabbit ears are actually the beak. Hopefully that. Can everyone at this point realize there's two pictures there? Okay, very good. Why would I show you this? Well, I'm trying to 
demonstrate what I'm going to call a bias. I'm going to suggest that for every tension or every polarity we're managing, we will always personally have a bias towards one side over the other. Doesn't mean that we love one and hate the other. What it means is that for whatever reason, any situation I'm in, I always see this first. This makes sense to me first. Sometimes I actually have to help, you know, get some help seeing that because this picture is so clear to me. How do we make a decision? That makes sense to me. I see one picture even though there's two. And biases can be a great thing. I can have a strong bias towards you know, teaching. Our church should be about teaching. And as a result, I may be gifted in certain areas. I can bring perspective to other people. But a bias can be a very dangerous thing when we start to convince ourselves that the picture we see is the best picture. Or, or what we see is a lot more correct than what they see. And what happens is that because of our bias, we can say, oh, well, I just need to really focus on the scriptures that affirm my bias. We look for the Bible in, in ways that kind of make sense of our picture. Or we'll find some friends that say, okay, I don't know what to do here, but I'm, I'm seeing this. What do you think? But we find friends that share our bias. And our friends say, no, we should do this. And, and, and immediately like, okay, very good. When, when actually you don't need to talk to people who share your bias. The best thing you can do is walk across the room, actually seek out someone that you know, every time we deal with this situation, you see the exact opposite thing. You're the person I need to talk to. But so often we don't do that. Let me give you one more reason that I think that we, we mess this up pretty often. And for this, I need everyone to stand up. Everybody, all locations, stand up. And if you're standing up, and if you were to do this, don't be punching the person beside you. Very good. Okay, um, stay standing, arms down. I'm gonna show you a pattern with my right arm, and then I'm gonna ask you to replicate that pattern back to me. Okay, I'll show it to you first. It's pretty straightforward. It just goes one, two, three, four, five, six. That's all there is to it. So everyone do it with me. One, two, three, four, five, six. Very good. Okay, I'm gonna show you a different pattern with my left arm. So watch me and then we'll do it together. Here we go. So the left arm is gonna go like this. One, two, three, four, five, six. All right, do it with me. One, two, three, four, five, six. Right arm by memory. One, two, three, four, five, six. Left arm. One, two, three, four, five, six. Okay, now here's the test. We gotta do them together. All right, I'm gonna slow down the pace, but we're gonna do them together, nice and slow. Everyone with me, here we go. One, two, three, four, five, six. All right, very good, very good. You can have a seat. I think you've proven my point well. Why would I have you do that other than to wake you up mid-sermon or almost at the end of my sermon? I do that because it demonstrates that sometimes having to do two things at the same time that are different is really hard. It's just easier to choose one. It's easier to be good at one. I like being good at one. I like being told what to do and know exactly how to respond. And I'm uncomfortable kind of not knowing. I don't like being vulnerable like that. And what happens is because we don't want to, you know, be in a, a situation of unknown, we don't want to enter the tension, we, we just kind of say, well, I'm just going to do this. I'm just going to hang out here. And we avoid these tensions because we don't want to enter into that mess. And anytime there's a polarity, anytime there's a tension, guaranteed there's going to be a mess. Guaranteed you're going to feel uncomfortable. And we'll slowly kind of just pick our side and camp out there. But the guarantee is if we do that, just like inhaling and holding it, it may work for a while, but in no time it'll actually start to work against us. It'll actually kill us.
kill our faith, kill our church experience. Somebody sent me a, 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 a small um, article and it was written um, around this idea of managing tensions. And I've probably read this a hundred times at least. And I'll probably read it a hundred more because I feel like it sums up this conversation much better than I ever could. So let's, um, let me read it to you. Uh, it goes like this. If we choose to live a more spiritual life, then we need to be more spontaneous, more engaged, and more contemplative. Living a spiritual life means that we're able to live our life in total polarity. This means that we're at ease in the in-between spaces, between traditional and progressive viewpoints, between rational and emotional responses, between taking action and just being there between solitude and leisure, between fasting and feast, between discipline and wildness. If we're not growing in our spiritual life, then we get stuck at one end of the spectrum or the other and we end up bland, lukewarm, mediocre, and isolated. The only way to live a spiritual life is to be able to touch both sides at the same time, knowing that it's the interplay between living in the spectrum of these polar opposite forces that we deepen our spirituality, we become more aware of who we are, whom we choose to be, and in challenging times, how we show up. I can say that that in itself was, was powerful for me, but what, is, what was even more powerful was when I realized when it was written. You see, this was written on March 28th, 1515. See, this wasn't some postmodern spiritual conversation we're having this morning. If you look, this idea of polarities or, or tensions to manage is all the way through the Bible. And it seems that it was part of St. Teresa's experience. And my, my hunch is that it's gonna be part of our lives, part of our faith, as long as we're on this earth. It's not going away. I said earlier that there is part of a church there's part of being a church. There's part of understanding God. There's part of living out my faith that's black or white. It's right or wrong. Sometimes good and evil. The Bible gives us truths that are universal. And it's important to know those things. It's important to hold on to those things. It's important to stand on those things. And that's only part of the story. Because as we talked about this morning, there's this whole other realm to a life of faith, um, to being a church that's thriving, to, to living out our faith and making a difference that's far from black or white, but instead is just ongoing gray. It's full of mystery, full of unknown. Sometimes it's messy. It's full of tension. And I gotta be honest, there are times when I wish that wasn't the case. There are times when I wish that it was actually a lot more black and white and I could just know what to do in every situation. And I feel like every time I'm at that place, if I let myself kind of pray about it, I feel like God always says the same thing. This is my plan for you. I want you to live in this tension. Yeah, I've given you lots of black or white, but there's a lot of your life that I want you to be in a place where you're consistently and constantly leaning on me. I've actually got this figured out. I have a plan, I have a path, and I'll at least be a light under your path so you'll know how to take the next step. I've got your back on this. I feel like God's saying, you know, when you look to the left and you look to the right, you realize that what you really need to do is look up. And I think of Job 33, 4. It says, the spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. 
When I feel like these things are too much for me to manage, I, I consistently feel like God's saying, hey, I'm everything you need to navigate this. I want your life of faith to be work sometimes. I want you to lean on me. I want you to need me. And I feel like every time he's saying, lean into me and just breathe. Just breathe. Let's do it one more time together as we close. On three. One, two, three. Nice deep breath. Another. One more time. Let's pray. God, thanks for the fact that you do have our back in all situations. Thanks, God, for the elements of our life, of our faith that are black or white, the truths that are universal. And God, let us know and understand those truths more every day. And God, also, let us have the courage, let us have the discernment to know those areas of our faith and those areas of our life that are far from black or white, but are actually very complex, very gray, very full of mystery. Help us to understand that, to be okay with that, And God, I pray that as we are, we would focus more on you, that we lean into you. And God, we would realize that it's these situations that you wanna push us in and understanding that you're everything we need. Help us, God, as a church, learn to manage these tensions well together, to be in a place that doesn't run away from tension, but actually says no, in in, in areas of polarity, we we wanna breathe well. We wanna live in harmony. And God, even in the next few weeks as we dig deeper into this, I just pray that this would be a conversation and a way of thinking that takes our church and takes all of us to a next level with you. We thank you, God, that you're there for us. We thank you, God, that you figured this out. And we thank you that your word reveals that this is already all figured out, that Jesus was our example of how to do this well. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.